The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Friday, September 11th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Why the cheap rotisserie chicken is ubiquitous in American grocery stores. The new true proportions of the Megalodon. Unpacking the enormous size of Houston, Texas and its highway interchanges as compared to a tiny Italian city center. And the 2020 finalists of the Comedy Wildlife Photography Awards. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. It's Friday night, the end of the work week. You're trying to figure out what to do for dinner. Maybe you stop by the grocery store because, let's be real, it's basically the only place that you can go to that isn't your house these days, when suddenly you see the solution. A rotisserie chicken. Fully roasted, no cooking required, and for just $5. When did these roasted chickens start appearing in our grocery aisles, and why, besides the obvious, are they so appealing? Luckily, Kathy Irway, author of the upcoming book Sheet Pan Chicken, has the answers. The modest rotisserie chicken first started appearing in U.S. grocery stores in the 1980s, quickly becoming a staple of many a dinner table. This year, according to the National Chicken Council, the nation is expected to eat one billion rotisserie chickens. But it turns out they don't usually make a profit for the grocery stores, at least not directly. For most, they actually cost more to make than what they're priced at, these days usually in the ballpark of $4.99 to $6.99. But that's such a steal for customers, especially the extra savvy who stretch it into multiple meals using the smaller remnants as shredded meat in other dishes or making chicken stock. And the allure of rotisserie chicken is so strong that it serves as a marketing ploy for the grocery store and thereby more than paying its due. The image, and certainly the smell, of a few chickens turning on a spit or displayed freshly roasted under a yellow light, particularly when compared to the bright sterile of the rest of the store, is carnally tempting. And it's neither a new feeling nor exclusive to the U.S. Markets across Europe use the same tactic in their window displays to lure customers in. And quoting Taste, It's depicted in medieval European art dating back to the 14th century. It was prized by Napoleon. When it's grilled outdoors, it takes on many time-honored formats around the world, from Brazilian churrascarias to Hawaiian huli-huli chicken, huli meaning turn. In the 20th century, gas convection ovens filled to the brim with chickens speared on rods began to pop up in Europe and North America at food stores and restaurants. But the term rotisserie, which can refer to both a shop specializing in roasted meats using this method or the rotating spits themselves, and the concept of replacing a home-cooked meal with one centered around it didn't hit the American zeitgeist until Boston Market, formerly named Boston Chicken, was founded in 1985. Originally opened as a single store in Newtonville, Massachusetts, it capitalized on rotisserie chicken in a way that its founders hadn't seen before in the United States, and it grew into a multinational franchise." End quote. 
But anyone who has bought a rotisserie chicken from a grocery store or even from Boston Market knows that it's not all marketing. The chickens are good. I mean, unless you're an excellent chef, they're probably better than what you would roast at home on your own, and not just because you're not the one cooking for once. And there are a few reasons for this. Quoting Taste, Rotisserie chicken is just different from home-roasted chickens. Rotisserie chicken has a different caramelization, different moisture content, and you'll never have better skin, says Kalau. It's a great benefit that we can't have in the house, end quote. Kalau also hints at a much longer marination process than one would usually have at home, and that some in the industry actually inject seasoning rather than just putting it on the outside or in the marinade. And particularly in grocery stores, there's also other additives. Quoting again, Costco's, for instance, have 10 ingredients, including sodium phosphate, carrageenan, and dextrose. With others, food stylist and chef Emma Feigenbaum suspects that caramel color, a substance that she uses a lot in food styling, is partly responsible for that dark glaze, end quote. And this gets us into some of the inconvenient truths about grocery store rotisserie chickens. If the stores are already turning a loss, they're not going to spring for the best chickens. We're talking about chickens raised for slaughter who never see the outdoors, contract farmers so far in debt to corporations they lack any rights, and employees stuck in horrific conditions. Now, none of this is news to us about factory farming, but one interesting ripple when it comes to rotisserie chicken is that because it's prepared food— it's not beholden to the same labeling restrictions as raw meat. So even if you wanted to find out if the chicken that you were buying was free-range or organic or what have you, you may not be able to. And Airway hypothesizes this out-of-sight, out-of-mind lack of labeling might be part of the nostalgia that powers so many people's taste for rotisserie chicken. It harkens back to a day when we maybe didn't know and didn't really care as much about where our food came from. Now, some stores do offer more natural versions without hormones or antibiotics, but they're going to cost you several dollars more. And many smaller independent stores offer rotisserie chickens as well, but not as any kind of enormous deal like the $5 ones from major chains. In the case of independent stores, they're just focused on a good product that has been popular with many Western families for centuries. Maybe some combination of the market and changes to the chicken industry will mean that the cheap versions of rotisserie chickens eventually fade out but I think it'll take a lot more before the appeal of a freshly roasted chicken leaves our cultural consciousness. And until then, there's still a great option for an affordable, convenient, relatively healthy meal. And next time you pick one up, you can think of the whole history that brought that chicken to your table. If they care about accuracy at all, it looks like the sequel to The Meg is going to have to redesign their deep-sea villain because paleontologists have found that the true proportions of the Megalodon might actually be a bit different than we previously thought. Megalodon means big tooth because one of its teeth is literally the size of an average adult human hand. It's an extinct species of shark that lived about 23 to 3 million years ago. And previously, its size had just been estimated from those huge teeth. But paleontologists from the University of Bristol and Swansea University have been studying the megalodon's closest living relatives in an attempt to get a more accurate read of the extinct shark's size. Despite originally thinking the megalodon belonged to the same family as the great white shark being directly descended from them, over the years, scientists have realized the megalodon was in fact probably the last of the line for the extinct family Otodontidae, and therefore probably part of the genus Carcharocles. 
Catalina Pimiento from Swansea University said, quote, Megalodon is not a direct ancestor of the Great White, but is equally related to other macro-predatory sharks, such as the Macos, Salmon Shark, and Porpigal Shark, as well as the Great White. We pooled detailed measurements of all five to make predictions about Megalodon, end quote. Basically, they used various mathematical analyses to figure out how the proportions of different parts of the different sharks would scale if increased in size, but part of the trick there was determining how those proportions would change based on aging. And this quote from Science Alert cracked me up, quote, Baby humans, for instance, aren't exactly miniature adults. A 1.6 meter tall newborn won't pass for a bank manager no matter how fancy their suit looks. Sharks, on the other hand, just might get away with it, end quote. And that's because, as paleontologist Mike Benton from the University of Bristol says, all of the related sharks that they studied basically start out as little adults. They don't really change much as they age. And all of that gave the paleontologists a fair amount of confidence in their findings that the megalodon would be 16 meters long in adulthood, with a head 4.65 meters long, a tail fin of around 3.85 meters, and a dorsal fin of 1.62 meters. Or, quoting again, if you want some perspective, this would be like parking three cars and standing on the middle one, the first car would be around the length of its head, and your height would be the height of its dorsal fin, end quote. And as Science Alert points out, the proportions are a little off-balance, meaning that the Megalodon might actually have appeared a bit more goofy than the horror movies make it out to be, with its oversized fins and snout. So maybe try to picture the Megalodon flopping around clumsily next time you watch the Meg, and maybe it won't be as terrifying. Speaking of unbelievable sizes of things, last month, director of the Manhattan Institute Michael Hendricks tweeted two images indicating that one of Houston, Texas's highway interchanges is the same size as an entire city center in Italy, one which houses over 30,000 people. Even looking at the pictures is pretty tough to believe. I mean, one of my personal favorite fun facts is that the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, which is partially located in my hometown, actually covers more ground than all of Manhattan. But that's a whole airport. We're just talking about part of a highway interchange. I guess the first thing to help make sense of all this is numbers. So Siena, Italy's city center, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, covers about 264 acres, or just over one square kilometer, or just under half a square mile. Now, Michael Hendricks didn't make this discovery himself. It comes from a report from the United Kingdom's Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission. In it, they critique car-focused city design and point out, quote, the center of Siena and a highway interchange in Houston are of similar size. The first is a home to 30,000 people. The second is a home to no one. End quote. And it's a fairly valid point to their argument, but as Texas Monthly points out, Siena is way older than Houston. Houston also experienced a huge population boom since the Second World War that Siena has not. And that boom corresponded with the rise of the family automobile, as well as the Cold War-era trend of urban sprawl. Quoting Texas Monthly, Cold War-era urban design philosophy in the United States prioritized sprawl because older cities that had urbanized pre-World War II, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, and Detroit, were seen as being susceptible to nuclear strikes. Less dense cities such as Los Angeles and Houston were less likely to be targeted for a nuclear attack. 
Sprawl was a deterrent against Soviet aggression. The Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 was, according to the historian Elaine Tyler May, in her book Homeward Bound, American Families in the Cold War Era, specifically intended to facilitate evacuations in the case of atomic attack. End quote. Of course, there were a lot of other factors in the mix when it comes to urban sprawl, including the racist practice of designing highways to go straight through black neighborhoods and restricting public transportation, which is disproportionately relied on by lower-income and minority families and individuals. But the fact remains that that is how Houston and many other major metroplexes across the U.S., and especially in Texas, were designed. And that means that now these places are not just reliant on cars and their corresponding freeways, but the towns themselves are indisputably massive. Houston, as measured by its 88-mile beltway that circles the main part of the city, is almost as large as the entire island of Oahu. To travel the same distance from one end to the other of Houston in New York, you'd be going from Rockaway Park up to Yonkers. And that's just the main city of Houston, not even including its suburbs, which are often included as part of it in shorthand. And when you've got a ton of people driving in and out and through the city every day, it's going to create traffic. Hence the seemingly monstrous stack interchange in the picture compared to Siena. Houston has so many of these multi-level stack interchanges that it's sometimes referred to as Stack City. Four-level stacks connecting two major freeways are fairly common, but five levels are mostly unique to Texas. In fact, they're literally called Texas-style stacks. They combine the crossing of two major freeways like a four-stack but add a frontage road on the bottom. And they do look Fairly horrifying from bird's-eye view photos like the one used in the initial post comparing the Houston one to Siena, but they don't feel that scary to drive on. Of course, I might just think that because I learned to drive on the tallest one in the world, the High Five Interchange in Dallas, which is 140 feet tall. But so, is Siena, Italy making more efficient use of land than Houston? I mean, probably. It kind of seems to me like we shouldn't design cities with a car-first perspective anymore, given how that priority leads to higher carbon emissions and all sorts of things. And I don't, you know, I don't know, maybe one day far in the future, we can replace freeways with high-speed trains or something. But I think the main takeaway here is that, yes, everything is just as mind-blowingly bigger in Texas as seemingly unbelievable tweets make it seem. Ending today with, I guess, a recommendation, because it's something you need to see to experience, which I know, great choice for a podcast, but basically, it's no secret that today is a tough day for a lot of people in what has been one of the toughest years in most of our lives. I hope that the last 15 minutes have been a bit of a distraction from the rest of the news of the day or other challenges in your life, but if you still need something else to buck up your spirits a little this weekend, I recommend perusing the finalists of the 2020 Comedy Wildlife Photography Awards. It's an annual competition that's been going on for the past five years and exists to raise awareness both of exquisite photography but also the conservation of wildlife. The awards are judged by a panel, but there is also one People's Choice Award that you can vote on over the next few weeks. But mostly, though, just go to the link in the show notes to enjoy some really great, adorable, funny photos of animals, which in my experience is always pretty good medicine. Among the finalists, there is a bird that looks like they're threateningly sharpening a knife. There's some bear cubs that look like they got interrupted while changing a tire. 
and a tiger that looks just so done with the world. Like maybe he just saw Tiger King and is getting ready to write a 13 tweet thread about why that was not a good look. Anyways, check it out. Hopefully it'll cheer you up if you need it or just give you a good laugh regardless. So yesterday, when I was talking about the Wild West mindset that researchers say persists in folks who live in the mountains of America, I mentioned an article I had read a few weeks ago that I couldn't find again. I searched through all my bookmarks, my browser's history, to the extent that that does anything. Turns out, it was on kotke.org the whole time. I can't believe that wasn't the first place that I looked. In my slight defense, it wasn't actually a published article that I was referencing. It was a Facebook post by Shannon Welch that Jason had added some of his own commentary to in his post. Regardless, the link to the Kotke post is in the show notes if you'd like to read more about what I was trying to relay from my memory. And thank you to Matt on Twitter for sending that my way. And that is it for today. I am going to go email the producers of the upcoming Meg to the Trench and ensure that they are accurately portraying the Megalodon in their very scientific film. I hope you have a good weekend, and I will talk to you again on Monday. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big.